Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. Hey team, before we get into things, me and Curran would just like to extend a thank you. A thank you to all those volunteers that have been working behind the scenes and often uh, go without recognition uh, on this latest TAR issue. There's a number of people that have been literally giving up hours and hours, days and weeks of their time fighting this thing. So for what it's worth, thank you to all those people. I'm not going to name them here because all we do is miss people out. But those who are listening, you know who you are. And um, I just think it's worth mentioning that uh, me and Curran as hunters and the wider hunting public in New Zealand owe you guys a massive amount of gratitude for all of the work and passion that you've done over the last couple of weeks, regardless of what the outcome might look like. Uh, we all know that your intention is in the right place, so thank you. G'day and welcome to this week's episode of The Educated Hunter. A couple of weeks ago I caught up with a guy that I have grown up reading his books, grown up reading his articles. Um, Cam Speedy is a household name if you're a hunter. He has been in and around hunting, ecology, conservation for close to 40 years. He has a huge amount of knowledge. We caught up pre-flying into the Central North Island Seeker Foundation management hunt a few weeks ago, touch base there. So the intention of this podcast was sort of do a little bit of debrief on the animals that we harvested out of there and sort of pick his brain around deer, natural systems, native flora, fauna, native non-native species, um, ecological systems, animal management, conservation. He really has been involved with so much of that stuff for such a long time. He has a incredibly valuable perspective on how it all fits into New Zealand and how it might fit into New Zealand and game management and animal management in the future. We sort of touched on what was going on with the tar stuff and you know although it was pre at all hitting the fan we sort of saw it coming so we talk about that a little bit as well as a bunch of other things. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Cheers. Perfect. All right Cam thanks for taking the time mate. It's a drizzly Winter's day in Turingi, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's cold, all right. Yeah, I mean, I've just come over the hill from the bay. There's a few smiling farmers on that side of the hill, seeing a bit of decent rainfall. Yeah, we've had a few hundred mil in the last six weeks, so it's coming green here, but shit, it was dry. Yeah, it almost looks like the tide's coming in on the lake as you come around the corner. Oh, yes, yeah, <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, that, and that reflects just the low rainfall, though. Most people in the New Zealand hunting world have probably heard your name, Cam Speedy, before, uh, given how long you've been writing and contributing to you know, books and magazines and everything to do with hunting and primarily seeker over the years. So I imagine your name is quite familiar, but if you were going to um, give me a, a brief synopsis of what you do for a living, what would you say these days? 
I'm a freelance ecologist and I try to plug myself into any environmental or ecological project where I think I can add some value and for me that value is around a whole range of different wildlife. Uh, I've got a lot of background in pest management, deer, seeker deer in particular is my, is my passion, uh, but freshwater ecology, blue ducks, I was on the Kiwi recovery group for 12 years in the 90s. Um, so, you know, I do work in the seabird space with Southern Seabird Solutions. So, yep. just a, I love wildlife. I love the connections that wildlife have to the landscape, and I try to help people understand those connections and how to best manage them to get those connections to get the best out of our wildlife resources, whether that is forests and and native Tonga or some of our more valued introduced species. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was, I was thinking to myself on the drive over here. I mean, I went through university. I did a degree in zoology at Otago. And uh, I, I started down the wildlife management track. And my lecturers and mentors and um, the other uh, students and honour students in that environment, I, 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 I couldn't relate to any of them. None of them were boots on the ground hunters I really struggled to find common ground with them to the point where I ended up settling for a BSc just a bachelor's degree in bailing out because I I just couldn't see or couldn't find anyone you know and to be honest like yourself that had more of a balanced view of what you know modern day ecology and and conservation in New Zealand looks like Um, so I went down a different path but it's funny that you know, nearly eighteen years later, found myself sort of looping back into this, and then fortuitively ran into you and met you a couple of weeks ago um, at the end of Kiko Road before we flew in, um, and we'll talk about that management hunt later. But you know, it was interesting once I got talking to you. It sort of, you know, it sort of occurred to me that perhaps you were the kind of person I needed to meet back then to keep me interested and, and draft me into that that side of things yeah well, I followed a similar sort of um, process to you I went to university I did ecology and wildlife management mm-hmm. and I got bored shitless with the facts and the information and the knowledge for me the rubber hit the road in the hills you know Yeah. and so I did a BSc um, and then I did five years living in the Kaimanawas and Kawekas for the forest service and that's where I learned my tr- my trade I, I started to put the join the dots yeah i mean i've always as a kid i'd look in a frog pond and i could see how the nymphs and the tadpoles and the damselflies and the frogweed and pondweed all connected together you know and yeah. i could look into a into a rock pool at the coast and i could see the anemones and the shrimps and shit and i, I could see how it all worked together as a as a unit as an yeah. ecology as a um and so that's always been a, a huge part of who i am i went to yeah. university and i learned all these facts all this knowledge and information yeah, yeah. and it just bored me shitless eh? and theory it was ethereal academic knowledge but it wasn't until I went into the hills and looked at beach forests and seeker deer and did rat trapping and bird surveys and and then the seeker research study in the 90s um, late 80s early 90s I, I lived in Jap Creek for huge parts of my life for six years Yeah, and I was able to understand how that beach forest worked yeah you know and and 
that's the foundation of my knowledge today. I mean, I, I do a lot of wānanga and, and teaching with kids and stuff, and I say to them, you know, they say, oh, I've got to go to university, I've got to, I've got to get a degree. And I say, well, actually, wisdom is made up of knowledge and experience, but yeah. the multiplier is the experience. The knowledge is one thing, until you apply it and understand it in a real-life situation through experience, you'll never gain the wisdom of being able to interpret and understand the land, you know. And, and, and so knowledge times experience equals wisdom. And you cannot teach experience. You can only live it. Yeah. And so that's what I've done. I've spent the last 30 years living ecology, experiencing ecology on offshore islands, seabirds, kakapo, feel, tuna, um, kiwi, and sikadere, and fjordland wapiti, and, and all of those systems are different, but the one thing they all have in common is that there's this massive interconnection, interconnectedness of life that makes it all work, yeah. you know, and and that's what ecology is, is about the connection, and that's, I see that as my role, I'm more of an environmental or a, or a a wildlife educator these days, yeah. Because I'm able to take that interpretation and dumb it down. Because I'm I'm a C student, you know. Yeah. I was never. You know, <laughs> C, C's yeah. get degrees, yeah. B's get jobs, A's get careers. But yeah. hey, I've ended up um, with an A in experience, yeah. and I've got a career in wildlife management. And I'm not wealthy by any means, but I love my life, and I live comfortably, and I yeah. do what I I do what I love, you know. Yeah, and no, I think that's a huge thing to live by, like. Being able to apply what you have now, which is wisdom, and and pass on that knowledge, I think is 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 really powerful. I um I have to say, like it's to meet someone like yourself who, you know, as a hunter, you know, you, we instantly um have common ground because we're hunters, right? And then on top of that, hunters with a bit of experience, without tooting you know, our horns too hard, but, you know, I was incredibly lucky to do a lot of hunting in a very short period of time all around the world. So I got the crash course in everything very quickly. Um, so we automatically can see eye to eye that way. But what I really enjoy about you and your experience is you have that, the ecological side of things and you've got an idea of, of more of what the balance in our New Zealand bush and in our ecology might look like because it's, you know, if you're going to, put New Zealand in the you know into context we've got the guys on the hunting side that I would call on the extreme side that leave the deer alone stuff dock stuff everything they do just you know more deer the better I want to be able to go out and hunt you know extreme version of that you know the the nutters that are putting 1080 and baby formula type people and then at the other end of the scale you've got a very hard line Department of Conservation forest and bird element that uh, remove everything from our native environment that wasn't there pre-European period. So that's your sort of your spectrum, and it's what's interesting to me. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, but most of New Zealand would land somewhere in the middle there if they had all the facts in front of them. Absolutely, yep. And that's what I honestly believe. I think that you know your average hunter and your average non-hunter and your average doc person and your average um, you know whatever would fall into that middle category and that middle category I guess is something that's never been created before in New Zealand because we don't know what that looks like you know we've got introduced animals who are browsers 
that were introduced into an area that at the time there were no browsers? And where does that ecological balance sit between, let's say, deer numbers and having a healthy ecosystem? That, I think, is where your knowledge is really beneficial to not only hunters, but those who give a shit about our environment in New Zealand should be listening to what you have to say, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I look across the Kaimanawas and I see a range of scenarios, as you've kind of explained. There are places where there are uh, significant deer impacts. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's a huge number of deer there. What that means is that relative to the ability of that habitat to support the deer, the deer have been at very high levels for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, um, an interdecadal thing. Yeah. That 20, 30 years post the helicopter deer wars times, mm-hmm. uh, really those deer haven't been harvested at high enough levels. And so Mother Nature's pruned them back mm-hmm. through starvation and... Um, lack of productivity mm-hmm. because the hinds stop having fawns and they're skinny and the forest is smashed and the raw is useless because none of the hinds are cycling in, in the autumn. At the other end of the spectrum, you go to places where there have been uh, cyclical 1080 applications uh, through the 90s and early 2000s where there was no deer repellent used and many of the deer were poisoned and the deer numbers are incredibly low and those forests are absolutely pumping. Uh, they're really healthy. The deer are so fat. Every hind has a has a fawn every year. But some hunters would argue that those areas have had um, far f- too few deer to make it viable to go for a hunt. Yeah. And then somewhere in between, you've got the sort of Clements Roads where the habitat's incredibly healthy. There's kaka everywhere. There's feel in the rivers. There's bats. Um, yeah. The deer are fat, every single hind has a fawn, but the beech forest is pumping. So kind of, I can see the spectrum that you've just described happening, playing out right on this landscape to the south of us here, uh, in its different places. And the key is to understand that different things are going on in different places because of their history, because of the types of management that's gone on. Um, The very acid volcanic soils of the high country are, are really tough really unproductive that's why there's no farms and forestry up there yeah T- guarantee a hundred years ago if someone could have made a farm or a forest up there they would have done so they yeah. tried and it wouldn't didn't work it's too hungry the yeah. country's too hungry so if you add the ecological layers on top of that once upon a time there were vast colonies of seabirds bringing marine nutrient into those mountains and fertilizing them adding to the nutrient in those very acid ashen um um pumice soils so yeah. you know we've lost that ecosystem service that those seabirds are gone because of predation now so there's there's ecological change at a scale of decades and even centuries going on on there and and if you if you have an ecological understanding and try to join those dots, you start to put that into a perspective. And and that puts you in a position to then make decisions about where you go in the future. What do we want? Yeah. How do we get there? And how do we monitor our progress towards getting there? But we don't do that. We just no. we just waft around, naff around in the breeze, lurching from one place to another, depending on whose political idealism holds... Uh, yeah, yeah. in the government of the day and there's no long-term strategy and, and, and you know as we'll talk about in a minute I suspect there are places in there that are not dying they're dead they're yeah. finished lack of management you know 
Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting thing because I mean I've found it all around the world um, from a, on a global perspective. Like people want to be able to put a nice neat box around things, you know, whether it be you know conservation or game management or you know here's a good example: elephants are endangered. Question mark. No, they're not. In certain areas, they're threatened. Certain areas, they are endangered. And in a lot of areas, they're heavily overpopulated. So you can't just put a box around elephants and say they're endangered. It's just not a thing. In New Zealand, every square kilometre of bush probably tells its own ecological story and has its own inputs that, to be quite frank, we don't really understand very well, particularly as a hunting, a general hunting public. Like, hunters have a fairly limited understanding of limited understanding of ecology in general and i i just from the department of conservation side the forest and bird side the extremist end that we talked about before and by no means do i mean everybody in doc because there are a lot of great people in doc that um meet everybody in the middle like we're talking about but the extreme end of you know people have a they it's like they have a um a very heavy resistance to accepting that introduced animals, deer and tar and those kind of things are here to stay and they're very resistant to allowing any kind of management or talk of management or acceptance of any kind of management of any kind because they're scared as soon as they do that that they'll lose... I mean, I don't know if this is the reason. This is what I'm assuming the reason is. I'm putting words in their own mouths. But this is from my perspective of what it looks like. It's like they don't want to agree to that because they have to let go of their ideological view of what New Zealand should be, which is a no-introduced animal utopia, which you know, my practical brain thinks there's no way that will ever happen, period. Hence the language becomes really important. So Doc used the term control. They never use the term management because management has the connotations of, oh, we're turning the Doc estate into a safari park. But actually what we're doing is management. And we could control the effects of deer a lot better if we had more effective deer management. Uh, And and that's that's the reality. And I can show you places in the commonals where the management is actually pretty much in the sweet spot. Yeah. And I can show you places where it's way out of whack. Yeah. And and control, um, you know, it's semantics really. Yeah. But the language is really important because it has connotations. Uh, it, but what we are doing is we're imposing human value judgments on a landscape. Yeah. And we are managing that landscape to achieve certain outcomes. If we have outcomes that are unachievable, then we'll never get there. No. We're... We're trying to empty Lake Topol with a teaspoon. You know, it's an exercise in futility if we have unrealistic outcomes. So we've got to set realistic outcomes, and then we've got to plan an approach that takes us to that outcome. And we need to monitor our progress towards it. Um, And in the deer management sphere, that is with things like animal densities, their condition, are they thriving Uh, Is every hind having a fawn? Are they all fat? And if that is the case, then you'll find the habitat is absolutely pumping. But if the deer are not thriving, the hinds are skinny, there's hardly any fawns, then you'll find that the habitat is not sustainable and we've got a problem. 
and, and I'll be the first to put my hand up and say in many parts of New Zealand we have a deer overabundance problem yep. because the habitat that they're living in can no longer sustain them and those habitats are sustaining terrible damage. Yep. And then all the things that depend on them, the kiwis, the feel in the creeks and waterways, the little metal metal birds, the, the robins, the uh, lizards, the insects, they all suffer as well. So, yep. I mean, I'm a conservationist, but I'm a hunter, but yep. I'm a realist. And um, that's what looking at the Kaimanawas over my 40-year career has given me is an understanding of that place um, that I'm really happy to share with anyone and help them um, get to a place where we still have kiwis that we can lie in our pit at night calling in the forest, that we still have Theo whistling at us as we walk up the creeks in the yeah. evenings and, and first thing in the mornings. You know, I want that for my kids in 30 or 40 years, and there are places where that isn't going to happen if we keep doing what we're doing. You know, we've yeah, Which is, it's bucket chemistry is what it is really. Like they just, you know, they'll put a lot of effort here because it's politically viable on the day and it doesn't actually have any long-term anything and I mean I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for you having been in the industry for 40 years and seeing the you know the peaks and troughs of what DOC and Forest Service and everybody who have been looking after that area you know the the ebb and flow of that tide must be incredibly exhausting to look back on. Oh I'm not- I'm just committed to what I do. I can't control anybody else. All I can do is control what I do. So I share my knowledge. I learn as much as I can, and and I don't know it all. I'm learning every day. And so I look at what's going on in there, and I obtain data about what's going on in there, and I share it with people. And hopefully people will say, actually, that's got some merit, that that idea, that concept, that understanding, that way of thinking. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But there's no one size fits all. It's we've got to bespoke our management for space, for site, yeah. place to place. What we do in one place might be completely different to what we do in another because they're different systems. Are we deficient in research? I believe our scientific research has been way too focused on deer as a pest and ways to get rid of them, whereas what I've tried to do with my research careers is understand animals better and at place, how does this animal operate in this place? And with that understanding, how do we better manage it to get outcomes that are desirable? You know, um, science is really important. And I think our current game animal science in New Zealand is abysmal because it was focused through the 70s and 80s on deer as a pest. How can we get rid of them? Um, Focused on eradication. An unachievable, ethereal, philosophical nothing. Yeah. You cannot get rid of them. They're there forever. Yeah. People are here forever. Deer are there forever. Um, yeah, and, it isn't, a, and we're better to grab it by the horns now and manage it so we retain as much of our native as we can. You know, you said it before, and I forget who said it, but. Um, Really resonated with me. Those who walk the whenua understand the whenua. Is that what you said? Yep. Oh, that was actually um, a doc lady in um, Napier uh, expressed that kōrero earlier this year, and I and I totally agree with it. And and I walk that whenua, and I understand that whenua, and I'm learning about that whenua every day of my life, and I'm really happy to share with anyone that She's knowledge. Interested. Because um, I, I see a disconnect sometimes because as hunters we do walk the whenua, 
but I think that we can do better as a group to understand what we're seeing. Oh, we have to open our eyes a bit more, yeah, open our hearts and our minds, yep, totally. Yeah, totally. So I think now we'll, we're going to talk about the Seeker Foundation and what your role there is in, in the management hunt, but in terms of understanding why we're on the subject, um, you've started a program or launched a program that was um, called the Hindsight Competition or Hindsight, Yep. which involved when you shoot a hind, understanding what you've got in terms of what's lying down on the ground in front of you. Do you want to run me through sure. what that is and what it means? So as a hunter, what I found taught me the most about deer was using every single carcass that I managed to get on the deck as a mine of information. And I would get into that mine and I would exploit it for every ounce of knowledge I could get out of it. What has that animal been doing? What is it doing in this place? It's, it wasn't just here yesterday or last week or last month. If it's six or seven years old and it's a hind, it will have been living in this place for six or seven years. It would have been born here mm-hmm. and she would have had every day here for the last seven thousand days. Yep. You know? What's she been doing in that seven thousand days and what does the information that's in her tell me about this place? First thing I do is I flick out her cheek pouches. It's telling me what exactly she was feeding on right here, right now, where she's lying dead on this clearing. There might be 10 or 15 species of plant on this clearing. You flick out her cheek pouches and you'll see that there are three or four in there. Mm -hmm. That's what she's targeting. That's what she's finding the most nutritious at this time of year. What's in her paunch? Oh, there's none of that on the clearing. Oh, but there's some way up there on that face up there. So she's been up there in the last 24 hours. Yeah, so that starts to put you put her in the context of a bigger landscape. Mm-hmm. How fat is she? Oh, she's a bit lean. Oh, obviously struggling a wee bit. Or far out. Look how fat she is. Magnificent man. She's thriving. Mm-hmm. You know how much? How much is in her puku? Whoa, she's full of cardboard. She's got nothing but beech leaves and cardboard in her gut. She's eaten so much. She looks like she's full as a bull. But in actual fact, she's just put in. 5,000 <laughs> units of crap to yeah. extract three units of something yeah. out of it. So she's just got this massive throughput. Oh, yeah, look at all the deer poo on the ground here. That's because mm-hmm. she's just eating tons of shit and, and only absorbing a tiny amount of nutrient out of it. Yeah, That's if she's skinny, you know. So you're starting to understand how old is she? Oh, yeah, here's her jaw. And, and I can look at a deer jaw having aged several thousand of them and just say, yeah, that's about a seven-year-old or a two-year-old or a five-year-old. or Well, that's probably 14 or 15 years old. So I can straight away look at her and say, well, if she's a 14-year-old hind, she sh- should have had a few babies in her time. Mm-hmm. Okay? In her udder. Squeeze her udder. Nah, no milk in there. She's dry this year. Must be doing real tough. Well, yeah, look at that. Big squirt of milk. She's had a fawn this year. There'll be a, a yearling running around here. Is she pregnant? Oh, yeah, look, there's a fetus. And from sort of July onwards, a fetus will be about as big as the top of your thumb. Right. So. Um, pretty obvious from an April mating. And yeah. as you go through the June to October period towards fawning time, that fetus will get bigger and bigger. Um, that's why we're focusing the hindsight competition for the June to October period. Yeah. Last year's Fawn is um, sufficiently grown to be independent without mum. 
Um, we, we haven't got those ethical issues of, of orphaning fawns when they're a little bit older. And she hasn't had her next year's fawn yet. So we can see if she's got milk in her udder and a fetus, she's bred last year and she's bred again this year. Yep. If she hasn't bred last year, maybe she has gone to the stag and she's got a fetus. But if you've, once a fetus gets reasonably big, big as your thumb, you can split the uterus open and you can see uterine scars from previous pregnancies on the uterus. And so you can start saying, look at that. Here's a girl that looks about 12 or 13 or 14 years old. She's got milk in her udder and she's got a fawn. And my goodness me, look at all those scars on her, on her uterus wall. She's pretty much had a fawn every year. That's why she's fat, that this habitat must be going okay. Woohoo! she's a 10-year-old hind. She's got no milk in her udder. She's got no fetus. And when I open, open her up, I can't even find a uterus. You know, Some of these old girls living in places like Ecology Creek, they might live for 10 or 15 years and only have two fawns in their whole life because there isn't enough food in there to sustain them. So they would have only had single calling stags hot up their ass twice in their whole life. And that's why the roar in there is useless, yep. because no one's single calling. There's no hot fanny. Yep. You know, so that hind tells you so much about that place. So we're encouraging hunters to look at their hinds and let that information tell them about what's going on in that habitat. And that's why we've called it hind sight. Yep. Looking at your hinds, understanding your hunting spot through the information you get off your hinds. Stags don't tell you about that spot where you shoot them. They're, they're commuters yep. between fanny and food yeah um they're just going between the brothel and the mcdonald's seasonally <laughs> you know um yeah. a, a, and they can commute up to 17 kilometers from mcdonald's down to the brothel Holy um man. and so they might take all the fat from heaps of kfc at one place yeah. into some real lean country and you'll shoot a stag in the raw, fat as butter, in some real lean country, and it tells you nothing about that site because all that fat's come from somewhere else. Exactly. And so you, by understanding the animal in its landscape and looking at the, um, the landscape in a more holistic way, you understand what's going on better, and you can say, right, well, if our management is we want really good rut hunting, we want fat venison to put on our family dinner table, we've got to get these hind numbers down to get the quality of this forest back up yeah and and so we're trying to get hunters to think about that it's not about numbers it's about the relativity between how many deer are in this forest and actually what is the capability of this habitat to support those deer and in some of this real acid leached out ash and pumice soils without seabird nutrient that's really low yeah in the places like ecology creek you might only have 10 deer per square kilometre and they're all skinny Um, because the place has been ticking down for 30 years. Go to Clements Road, 5 deer per square kilometre, they're all fat as butter. They're 35 kilo carcasses. You know, those those hinds you shot at Ecology a few weeks ago, I bet they weren't even 20 kilo carcasses. 18, 17, 18 kilo carcasses. Let's talk about it. So... I learned a lot, and it's what pushed me into this. Well, not pushed me into this podcast. It opened the door for this podcast, but it it really got me thinking. And I've listened to a lot of your stuff and read a lot of your stuff in the past, and I understand it. But again, it's actually walking the land to understand it and see it and feel it and experience for yourself. The first thing you notice when we flew into Ecology Creek was it looked like someone had been in there manicuring manicuring putting greens, anything that was open and um, had grass on it, and I call it grass very loosely. It's more like a 
It's called uh, deer lawn. Deer lawn. It's like <laughs> it's like a hard packed moss is what it looks like when you actually walk on it. You know, no one's been in there mowing it. It's that the deer have eaten that. So that was the first thing we noticed. Oh shit! Geez, there's not a lot of tucker on the easy bits, boys. This will be interesting. Landed in there. Helicopter left. No, it was first thing in the morning, and it was a cracker morning, like an absolute cracker morning. And we were first to go in. You know, we were a day delayed, but first to go in on that from that side. And it was a cracker morning. There wasn't a single freaking bird song, not one. You know, and I've been rabbit shooting full time next to um, Mount Bruce Pukaha, so I'm you know the tuis and bellbirds and wood pigeons follow me around. You know, like they're everywhere. So it was just stone cold silence. That's the first thing I looked at. And I thought, okay. Well, Cam said that they got lots of photos of deer in here, so there must be deer. So, you know, we we hunted for what did we get in the end? A day and a half, really, is all of the effective hunting time we had. And between the four of us, we shot seven deer, well, eight deer, recovered seven, um, which is a lot of deer. Um, and to be fair, Kirk, I don't know if you're listening, he carried the team pretty well. He's a fairly effective individual when he gets going. Um, he was a bit gutted. He took his 300. It was a bit getting a bit expensive by the end of it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, all that said, we, we knocked some deer over. We got the results of what they were, and so Dad shot a a seven or a rising eight year old hind, and he's written you a hindsight um, story by the way, but he hand wrote it. Nice. Oh, that's asked cool. me to post it, so I, yeah. I told him I'd figure that out for you. By the way, those who are fans of this podcast know Ross and what he's like. It's three pages long. I don't quite know how he's got three pages out of it, but I'm sure there's a bit of bullshit you'll have to work your way through. Anyway, I shot a stag, um, which was a rising seven-year-old, <laughs> and I shit you not, when I walked up to it, my, here's the thing, my gut reaction when I walked up to it, I thought to myself, oh shit, I've shot a baby, you know, I've shot a, you know, a two-year-old stag, what a bloody waste, you idiot, you know, shame on you, and then I kind of looked at it and I thought, something weird about this looking thing, and the best way I can describe it, looking at it, was kind of like a Bonzo idea, like it's, and I kind of looked, walked up to it and I grabbed it by the scruff of the neck and the ass, and I lifted it up out of the creek and threw it up on the bank. And, I mean, I haven't shot a lot of seeker in my time. I haven't done a lot of seeker hunting. But I first went through my mind, I was like, shit, it must be young. It's so small, but it looks funny. looks weird. Foot bugger it. I've shot it. I'm going to own it. So I cut it up, carried it all out, including the antlers. It wasn't until we got to the road end and you looked at the jaw and you think, oh yeah, that's probably a seven or eight year old stag. And we, I just sort of was like, but there's no fucking way. Like, there's no way. But it is. It's, it's bonsai. Kirk shot a 175 month old hind. So that's, that. what's that, a rising 15 year old? 15 year old, yeah. She was dry, not surprisingly. And he did an autopsy and he reckoned he could see one or two scars. So in 15 years of living in that place, she's had two fawns. He also shot a 114-year-old month-old hind, so that was a nine-and-a-half-year-old. She had an 18-month-old fawn at foot that he said looked like a fawn, but it was actually 18 months old, so a rising two-year-old, and she was dry, and she wasn't pregnant. 
So, so she skipped two years after raising a fawn. Yeah, so yeah. skipped two years mm. and probably stopped feeding it pretty early on. Yeah. And, it, and for it's that reason, little. It's, a, it's a month, like another Bonds idea. Yep. And then Tom, he shot a, a two and a half, or a rising three-year-old, let's call it a stag, but the best way to describe it looked like a bloody munt jack. And uh, like we were laughing our asses off when he brought back to camp. I've never seen anything quite <laughs> like it. Like it was tiny little pedicles on the thing and a, a horn, the longest horn on one side was about the length of my little finger, just to put it into context for everybody. So that's what we ended up with. And we were sort of sitting around camp thinking, this is unreal. Like it's just, it's quiet. There's no tucker. What are they eating? Like what are they eating? Like I couldn't find anything. Uh, it's sad, eh? It's actually we laugh about it, but um, it's it's desperately sad from an ecological perspective. And yet, you you send a lot of hunters in there, and they'll work very hard to shoot maybe one or two deer, and they'll come in and say, "What are you on about? There's not that many deer in there." But again, it's not about the numbers; it's about the the deer density relative to the ability of the habitat to support them. And over the last three decades. That place has been going down and down. And you saw the explosure plot there. Yep. In, in 1984, I helped build that as a young Forest Service wage worker. Buck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we were still shooting red deer in the valleys there then. And the seeker were were there and the deer were reasonably flat, but the helicopters were still working. Yeah. Uh, they just stopped catching uh, hinds and shooting stags. So the numbers were sort of bottoming out. And the deer were in reasonable condition. 30 years on, there's been a remote experience zone designation on that. No one's allowed to fly there legally, so people walk there. A few guys walk in there in the rut with um, with a rifle and, and a sack of rice and, and eat venison and rice for a week and shoot a few stags, but they're under-harvesting the hind population. There just hasn't been a big enough harvest, and the deer have eaten themselves out of all the nutritious tucker that that forest has available and we saw dead deer yeah that hadn't been shot oh, it just died and dead fawns and there's been no 1080 ever in that catchment so yeah. the the lack of birds and the dead deer have got nothing to do with poison this is just an ecology spiraling downwards over decades of poor management it's not about control it's about no management yeah. and um you know I have to take responsibility for that. I've tried to get hunters in there. We've come up against the remote experience zone designation because trampers and fishermen want to walk in there and not have helicopters flying around and not have hunters. But how do you balance out the need to harvest sufficient deer to keep the habitat healthy? The foundation of any hunting resource is not the deer. No. It's the habitat they live in. And if you have not got the foundation sustainable you haven't got sustainable hunting and and you've just witnessed the yeah. the most graphic example of that currently in the Kaimanawa Kaweka high country yeah and it's important to put context on it because if those at the extreme end were to take that as an example and then extrapolate that across the whole Kaweka Kaimanawa then you have a situation where they say okay we're going to go in and hammer the seeker deer because look at what they do to the mountain beach and in that specific zone, in Ecology Creek, let's be honest, you'd have to be bloody keen to walk in there to start with. You know, and there are easier places to go to get a big stag and probably bigger stags you can get in easier places. 
It sure as shit not where I'd go to put venison on my table, particularly if I had to carry it out of there. The only reason we bought venison out is because we could load it into a 70-litre chilli bin and put it on a frickin' helicopter. You know, and even then we had a bit of back steak the other night, and I'm not going to lie, the ones that were on the back of the crop paddock on the farm were looking a lot better than what we had on our plate in front of us. But, you know, ethically you shoot it, we're going to try it, we're going to eat it, turn it into meat. And that's the value of the Seeker Foundation management hunts, is that we, we get parties to fly into 22 different sites, mm-hmm. and they are at different ends of the spectrum. Yep. Across the Kaimanawa front country, where the public have difficulty getting to um, because the only access is really through Lake Topo Forest, and mm-hmm. Lake Topo Forest access is restricted for Mana Whenua. So yeah. we're dropping people from Kiko Road, just a, a two or three hour walk uh, east or west into front country. Yeah. Um, that country has had a couple of cycles of aerial 1080 with deer repellent, I might add. Uh, the possums are gone from basically that country, uh, and there have been dead deer found even with the deer repellent. But the deer that those guys shoot, then those guys shot four each, those those parties along the front country, fat, healthy deer. Every hind has a fawn, every uh, hind has milk in her udder and a fetus yeah. in, in her uterus for next year. They're breeding every year. They're 30, 35 kilo carcasses compared yeah. to your 16, 17, yeah, 18 kilo. Twice the carcass weight. They're, they are not... Um, Bomb's idea in the front country they're, yeah. they're very healthy and there's flocks of kaka there's robins everywhere there's you know um, so so you know the, the cool thing about the management hunts is that hunters who, who uh, utilise that opportunity more regularly who can go to different places can see the difference that we're, and that helps their education and understanding this relativity between deer density and the carrying capacity because the front country forest is much more productive yeah. it's warmer it's got different forest types um the high country uh the, the carrying capacities their poles apart and that's where the rubber hits the road for game management is understanding carrying capacity and yeah, it's got huge replications from a game management point of view from an ecology point of view from understanding the land and the bush as a kiwi as a hunter someone who goes out there and experiences it's got massive benefits and if you're listening guys what cam just told you about the hindsight stuff and how to analyze a hind you've got on the deck if you want to become a better hunter if that's your only goal on this is beginning becoming a better hunter if you start paying attention to some of the things that cam's talking about i guarantee you're going to be 10 times more effective if you start absorbing some of that information so it's it's so beneficial and so important that we understand it because trust me we're recording this on the 25th of june on the 30th of june the shit is going to hit the fan again as far as tar goes Unfortunately, this podcast will come out after then, so I'm predicting the future, but <laughs> by the time this comes out, it won't seem so much like a prediction, but pointing out the obvious, but it's going to happen. We've got some real battles on our hands, not only with the tar coming up, but also the deer all over the country, and I suspect that one of the first that are going to be on the target list, and you probably agree with me here, Cam, given what we talked about pre-recording, but is the, the seeker in the mountain beach country oh there are is some stress out there and i 100 percent agree with doc and the minister that there are places in the kawaka kaimanawa that is an issue that needs to be addressed uh but hunters seeker hunters can be part of the solution and it isn't everywhere don't think what you saw in ecology creek is typical of the whole kaimanawa kawaka because it's absolutely not no 
you know, uh, and, and so that education that you've gone through, and we've just run two management hunts into the Commonwealth through June this year, 114 hunters, 31 parties, 1,850 hours of hunting, they shot 50 odd deer, the, the most important outcome of that is that those 114 hunters now are starting to become seeker managers, they're not just end-use consumers of seeker deer anymore. Yeah. And that's what the foundation is about. We're trying to shift that culture from being seeker end-use consumers mm -hmm. to seeker managers. Kaitiaki, guardians of the future of and sustainability of the seeker in the high country of the Sea North Island. For too long, we've, we've been full of this entitlement to go and do whatever we like, wherever we like, however we like. R rights and entitlements, you know. And now we see the minister cranking up to try and deal to the deer that we feel entitled or we feel rights that should be ours. I mean, I, I think we've got to look really carefully at ourselves as hunters and say, well, have we got some rights and uh, entitlements here or do we also have responsibilities and obligations? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we need to step up and actually own some of these problems. Yeah. Um, too many deer, overabundance. Why is that? We're not shooting enough. Why are we not shooting enough? Don't know. How often do you hear it? Don't shoot the hinds, bro. Just shoot the stags. More's better. Yeah. We want more deer. There'll be more deer next year if we leave all the hinds. No, that isn't the case. As you can see in Ecology Creek, more hinds is not better. No. It's Bonsai really deer. <laughs> yeah. Unsustainable forest. Dying forest. Dead forest. Yeah. Um, the minister has some genuine concerns, and I share those concerns, but my message to the minister would be minister seeker hunters can be part of the solution we are not the problem we are part of your solution we have the skills the backcountry knowledge we are able to look after ourselves in the hills uh, we've got the energy we know the country our members walk the whenua our members know the whenua mm -hmm. um, sadly too many dock officers these days don't know the whenua that they're managing and that's unfortunate um, but we supply all the information we gain from these management hunts to the department. So it's kind of ironic that they come to us uh, for our knowledge of the commonals because we know it better than they do because we walk the whenua. Um, and so we are part of the solution. But if we just get into our corner with a sort of redneck sense of entitlement and rights and just we'll get sidelined. Yeah, we will. And we'll... That's not where I'm at. I want to be at the front of this, leading it, being part of the solution because we can help yeah. and we can make it better. And I would love in 20 years' time for my kids to fly in and their kids to fly into Ecology Creek, have Kiwis still calling, to have Fio in that creek and have fat seeker deer living in really healthy forest. Yeah. But it's going to take 20 years of good management to get there. I agree. I 100% agree. And it's so important, I think a, a good segue would be how important these days that, you know, hunter-involved foundations like Fjord and Wapiti Foundation, Central North Island Seeker Foundation, the Tar Foundation, have scientific, thought-out approaches to how we manage and correspond and insert ourselves into these conversations as genuine stakeholders and interest parties in these conversations. 
by being a member of one of these clubs, I think is the minimum you can do. You know, pay your fees, you know, buy a T-shirt, be a member. If you've got, you know, if you're working and you've got a young family and you're paying a mortgage, I get it. It's hard to donate your time. But you, we should all be able to donate a couple of hundred bucks a year to look after the resource that we enjoy having. So there's your, there's your square one. Square two is get involved. Get involved in the boots on the ground conservation projects like the Seeker Foundation have here, you know, with the FIO, with the, um, you know, the predator control, all of that kind of stuff. It's just so beneficial. And what that does is it inserts us into the conversation and we are putting genuine man hours into the bush that, quite frankly, Doc can't afford to do on their own without the input of the community. The Seeker Foundation's currently investing 2000 hours every four months. We report this to Doc, um, March to June. I've just done the stats this morning. 2,051 hours across bat surveys, pheo predator trapping, hut and track maintenance, and biggest one, deer hunting, mm-hmm. in areas where we perceive numbers uh, are high on the basis that the deer are skinny, that the average age of the animals is quite high, yep. uh, which reflects low harvest, uh, yep. and the forest is struggling. Or in other places where it's hard for people to get to, we've got the sweet spot and we need harvest to maintain the sweet spot. Yep. You know, So we've got deer jaw data, we've got hunter returns. We have a lot of science around what's going on in these catchments, and every catchment is different. Yep. We can look at the age structure and the herd structure in each catchment at a micro level now because of the information we've got. And we can work with Doc around where we know the stresses and where there's no issues. Um, it would be a waste of taxpayers' money if deer were being killed by taxpayers' money in the areas where the sweet spot is, is happening already. That would just be a tragedy. Yeah, and I, I think you guys have you've evolved quickly. You've taken that... Um because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's younger than the Fuel Demopity Foundation. The 2015, Foundation. March 2015 okay. is when we started. So yep. Five years, you guys have gone from nothing to where you are now, which I think is a, you know, if any, you see any of these guys hanging around town in Taupo or Turangi or wherever they hang out, you should be buying them a beer if you're a seeker hunter because the amount of time and effort these guys put in is unreal and how far you've come so quickly and in inserting yourself into those things. Because, I mean, when I talked to Gary Harwood... Um, be just over a year ago now um, on this podcast there was uh, he was talking about um, being at the same table as Osprey which if you say Osprey hunter and deer in the same sentence it gets met with a whole bunch of fireworks and emotion that really doesn't have you know it has a history for sure but in this modern day and age you guys inserted yourself in a conversation and it resulted in Osprey going in and harvesting 400 and something. Just done the stats for the annual report. Um, in the last three years, between Osprey's helicopter operations and the incentivized hunter contributions, mm-hmm. 473 deer. Okay. Got the jaws from just about all of them. Uh, we got sex, age, reproductive status, condition scores. None of them had TB. Um, but that is the best contemporary sample of seeker deer since I was collecting it from the sort of Clements Road to Omaru um, area in the 90s where we had seven or 800 jaw samples. 
Right. Uh, but we didn't have the reproductive status or the condition scores. With this work we've done with land care research in Osprey, yeah. we've got probably one of the most robust game animal databases from a particular location from anywhere in New Zealand. And that, so I'm, I'm stressing the point here, the only reason we have that as hunters is because you guys sat down at the same table and were part of the conversation so that, try to be part of the solution. Yes, yeah, solution, yep. part of the conversation, part of the solution. So when they flew in there, they were not only collecting all that data as part of the solution, as, the, as part of the project, they were also targeting what? Hines. Hines only. And well, they needed some stags because stags travel much further. Yep. And as a sentinel for disease, okay. the chances of picking up disease would be higher. Yeah. So... Um, they took photographs of all the cull stags they took and we asked them just to take the rubbish out. Yep. They flew over so many nice eight-pointers, you wouldn't yep. believe, dozens and dozens, yep. 20 in, an, in a single mission on one particular flight. They either, either said they would have left well over 20 good stags today. You know that, that is game management at its best. And in fact, of the 473, three-quarters of them were hinds, the other quarter was stags, but a lot of those stags were shot by recreational hunters who got $150 for their sample. Yeah. They got to shoot the stags. Yeah. Um, this is the win-win outcome that you find when you sit around the table and become part of a solution, not throw bombs across yeah. the fence, you know. If you weren't at the table... They would have just gone and done what they wanted to do. Which would be just laid a waste of 470 deer with no... They would have just taken all the pluck... For, for culture yep. and left the rest to the blowflies yep. a large proportion of those deer got flown out in a wolf edge and put in a chiller and given to two whareatoa um, that were spread around the marais and the komatu and the kuya yep. a lot of those deer were in shit condition so that, that, was, that wasn't an option uh, so yep. some of them were in poor or very poor condition and those were left on the hill yep. but the average uh, in, in good conditions, there were just a note. There were no fat one shot. Yeah, there were about forty out of four hundred and seventy that were called good. Really, and the rest of them were crap. The rest were average, poor, or very poor. Hmm. And so the average ones uh, were were spread around two fighter Um and that's just a reflection that mana whenua for that place have. Um, it's a special place to them as well, and the treaty gives them a partnership role in the management of that place, uh, and we totally embrace that. Yeah. Um, our iwi liaison officer in the foundation is connected to Tuwhareta, and so we we do work with them as key stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, and the more and more I listen to your talk, and the more I get into this kind of stuff, and I have to say, it's one of the things that I'm most excited about being home in New Zealand is now I get to insert myself in a lot of these conversations and, and be a lot more part of it than I've been able to from abroad but the word community is, is so important and I think that you know hunters are starting to figure it out that you know and particularly guys like yourself and those attached to the foundations around the place that community is really really important and we need to find that balance that ticks as many boxes for everybody as possible, but with the concession that there's not one group within this community that are going to have all their boxes ticked. That's just not viable. 
You've got to tick as many of the collective boxes as you can to make any kind of headway. We've got to work together to a common goal, a common outcome. You know, and, that, and, and, and the journey might be a little bit different for different people. To, but ultimately, what do we want? We want the high country to be thriving. Yeah, everybody wants that. That's the one goal that we all share. Um, and we might have slightly different pathways to getting to that goal, but we can all help each other. The FIO project is a classic. We've got a whole lot of people that are helping Gary and Josh with the FIO predator trapping in the Kaipo and the Omaru. They're from tramping clubs or local businesses, or they're um, the daughters of friends or you know the, the young people who are wanting to get into the bush and get involved they don't necessarily hunt no. they just love being in in that beautiful beach forest yeah. and that's community we share a common interest in looking after the place how lucky are we that if we look at all that and say okay where's the common ground that as hunters we can honestly say in that common ground lower numbers of deer better ecology better trophy quality better meat condition and venison condition, better trophies, better ruts. More more intense ruts, single calling, unbelievably better. Yep. So much more fun. And that all, thankfully, is in that middle ground. Like we're getting all those check boxes. It's a bit of a no-brainer, eh? And what pisses me off is the guys that want those two extra check boxes, i.e. I want to be as many deer as possible and I hate docs, so I'm going to go against anything that doc or forest and birds say. So I want those two boxes checked way out on that side, tend to be the most vocal and the ones that screw it up for everybody. And then on the other side, you've got the purists within forest and bird and doc who say, actually, we don't want to tick any of those boxes that involve anything to do with introduced animals, so... We want to be way out on this side, and they're the ones at the moment that are the most vocal. And unfortunately, our current government swings very much on that side. And there's going to be some shit go down here in the next few days that proves that um, they're sort of screwing it up for everybody. They're screwing it up for the community. They're screwing it up for the dock employees who live here. You know, who are passionate about here and probably rely heavily now on you know, the likes of the Seeker Foundation and the rest of the community to do the work, we don't get the cool shots. Well, that's the other thing, you know, Seeker hunting brings in $18 million a year to the Central North Island provincial economy. Yeah, it's, not it in, it's not insignificant. I mean, it's not up into the $100 million like the total fishery, but $18 million of economic activity in the Central North Island as a result of having a Seeker herd there is going to help some businesses. Mm. Heli Seeker clearly are, are one that does very well out of out of that. But hunting and fishing and pack and save and you know the service stations and the, the people who sell hunting kits, Stony Creek, our partner with the Seeker Foundation, um, you know, those are all businesses that benefit from having that resource out there. Yeah. But but also the Seeker Foundation has managed to pull together over fifty thousand dollars worth of sponsorship from the community yeah. to pay for our traps in the Kaipo and the Omaru to protect feel. What about those people? They've got a stake in this as well, you know. Yeah. And, and this extreme views either side of this polarized argument is so destructive and yeah. so unhelpful. Because at the end of the day, what you just described—that sweet spot, that goal of of the whole place thriving—is what we all want, and we want it to be thriving for our grandkids. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's a. It's bloody interesting, and you know, you, if you're listening to this, you can probably tell that, you know, I'm passionate about it. But Cam is also very passionate about it, and that's that. I think it's that passion that we've got to learn how to, you know, as a wider hunting community, really focus 
a little bit more. Like it's all very well jumping on social media and having a tap out on a paragraph of you know venting your frustrations and your your views and your ten dots that you've joined up in your own head. But until you really understand what's happening boots on the ground, it's it's pretty hard to you know have any kind of meaningful impact other than stirring the pot. But for what it's worth, thank you to what the work you guys are doing. Um, I saw that you're having a meeting on Sunday, which unfortunately I'm not going to be here for, but I would have driven over for it. Um, yeah, I guess the next question I sort of wanted to ask you about and sort of head down towards was is something that we were all very jealous of at the end of the road and you've touched on pretty quickly is you quickly glanced at the jaws that we had and you predicted the ages within a year. I think you pretty well nailed all of them, if I'm honest just by looking at the teeth they've obviously gone away since then and been aged down to the month so there's probably a lot of guys listening who think shit that'd be bloody handy to know how to do is can you give us a verbal rundown of something to look for or is it something we need to do some photos and diagrams oh no it's pretty easy to age young deer up to about four years of age through just through tooth eruption patterns okay the first three teeth in the jaw not the incisors that they chew the bite the grass off with but the if you come back in the jaw, the first three teeth yep. uh, are called milk teeth. They're replaced at about two years of age. The third tooth in has three cusps as a baby tooth, but only one cusp as a, a adult tooth. Right. And that um, baby tooth drops off at about two years of age. And so if it's got three cusps on its third tooth in, um, it's less than two years of age. Okay. Um, the, there are three molars behind the uh, three milk teeth. The first molar is the animal's born with the second molar is right through as a uh, two-year-old and the third molar is right through as a three-year-old the third molar's got three cusps and the very last cusp pops through the gum at the very back of the jaw um, as, at about 36 months of age and then the teeth start wearing and flattening off right um, so at that point you're just looking at it from a pure wear and jaw length yep. point of view. So, and you've done how many hundreds of thousands? Thousands. Of yeah. Yep. So they start off very steep and mountainous, and yep. over time they wear down just like a mountain, mm-hmm. get flatter and flatter and flatter. Uh, and sometimes you'll, you'll find abscesses quite regularly. In fact, they'll get a, a piece of stick or a seed caught between yep, their, their tooth and their gum, and so they'll get a big abscess, and so you'll get horrible sort of... S- individual teeth will start to sort of look like they've rotted and disappeared but what we do once they get older than about four years old is we section the first molar which is the tooth that they've had all their life and right down the bottom are these things called cement pad annuli which are basically growth rings in a tree Mm -hmm. and they lay down a layer every year just to try and maintain the viability of the tooth into old age so it's pushing up um, as the teeth tooth wears down with chewing it's the cement pad annuli layer up and push push back up to just try and prolong the life of the tooth and you can count 10 15 layers in some of these older deer in that first molar okay uh takes a bit of getting used to and looking at but once you get your eye in it's uh but once you've aged a whole lot you can just look at them straight away and say yeah that will probably be about a 10 year old and then you section the tooth and see the layers and um yeah it's it's not hard, and we're training up a few newbies. Uh, Alan Jackson has done probably more jewels than me now over the years, yeah. thousands and thousands, and um, 
he's not going to be around forever, so succession planning we need. It's a critical skill in New Zealand. John Deleri has got that skill in Invercargill down with the whitetail and some of the South Island herds. Yeah. Um, Alan and myself here in the North Island, that's about it. And, you know, if game management is to really grow in New Zealand, we need a fleet of game biologists who have the skills that can do autopsy, can look at uteruses and find placental scars, aged deer uh, from just looking at them or or by sectioning. We need a fleet of game biologists who need to go to university and as part of their environmental studies or their ecology learn game management 101, game management 201 and game management 301, masters and PhDs. We need science behind what we do yeah. because... You know, near enough isn't good enough. We need to back up our understanding with robust scientific data. Yeah, I 100% agree. It's a bloody interesting skill. I'd be keen to learn it. So there you go. I'll be your first apprentice. Um, here's the, I guess the, um, we've covered a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about, if I'm honest. Um, I feel like I could talk to you about just seek a deer and their biology for hours and hours on end but I mean you've obviously you live in the central North Island live in Tarangi you've been in and around seeker deer your whole life but what from your perspective what makes them so cool as a deer they're lovely to eat yeah they are um, assuming you don't get them from a college creek <laughs> <laughs> oh the rut for me seeker rut hunting when stags are single calling is just one of the most exciting hunting experiences you can ever have. It's what do you mean by single calling? So seeker stags have a number of vocalisations. The one most people hear is the series of whistles. Um, three, four, five whistly type calls. Yeah. That's called a contact call and he's making that when he's doing his scrape. And that's basically, here I am, this is me, um, come and check me out, I'm hot. Um, I'll give you good babies yeah. um, he'll scrape he'll um, scent mark his scrape then he'll give a contact call and he'll move on and he's marking out his territory so he's basically generally seeker deer are a forest deer they don't defend big harems like wapiti or red deer do they are like more like whitetail uh, where they'll go to a estrus doe or more likely estrus doe will come to one of his scrapes and say here I am bro I'm hot, yep, come and be with me, let's do it. And so they'll walk, run together for six or eight hours, they'll mate numerous times. When he's doing that, he's single calling, and that's the call, that's the single call. That is, I've got a hot chick here, stay away, right? or I'll beat the crap out of you. And he'll often be right beside her, eyes glazed back, pizzle hanging out, and you'll call and he'll call, but you're not in his face, and you get every time, if you can get a bit closer, call, he'll call, get a bit closer, call, he'll call, Get a bit, then you'll get into his zone, you'll get in his head. You get to a, that point, you give a single call, and he doesn't answer, he's coming, and he'll just turn up. Yeah. It's fucking exciting, man. It's unreal. It is, for me, that's the ultimate seeker hunting. When you hear a single call, and you call to him, and he answers, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just awesome. And then every time you call, he calls, and you close the distance, close it down, close it down, close it down. And then when you you think you're close enough, you just get where you can see good enough, yeah. you know, a bit of cover. 
and give him one and he doesn't respond, then you get ready because he'll be there. You won't hear him. He'll sneak in. He'll try and cut your wind. And, you know, nine times out of ten, he'll bust you. Yeah. But one time out of ten, you'll get him. And that that's what makes seeker stag hunting so awesome. But unless there's hot fanny, yeah. there's no single calling. And unless the hinds are in good condition because the habitat, the foundation of that hunting resource, the forest is in really good condition, you won't get single calling. And that's that's where the win-win is for hunting and conservation. Yeah. You know? It got me excited. I'm very look, very much looking forward to my first seeker out ever. I don't think I've ever hunted. Oh, man. That's the ultimate, eh? I'm very excited. Okay. Change gears slightly. In terms of... There's probably a few guys listening to this out there, and um, Curran, my partner in crime, being one of them, who you know have access to private land that have deer on them, and have probably had all kinds of old wives' tales and rules of thumb and bullshit game management stuff thrown at them for year in year out. In terms of if you've got a block of land where you want to manage, let's say red deer. Um, you know, what are a few basics that you can follow? Like, um, you know, how would you establish a carrying capacity of how many deer you want in that area? So firstly, you look at the condition, the breeding condition of your hinds. You want most of your two-year-olds going to the stag and breeding it for the first time at two years of age. Okay. So a yearling, basically, a rising two-year-old, goes to the stag at 16 months, 17 months in April mm-hmm. and has their first fawn as a two-year-old. Okay. To do that, you've got to grow fast. And you grow fast by having lots of milk from mum because mum's in really good condition. And then when you get off the milk, heaps of a really quality kai. Yeah. So that tells you that you're in a sweet spot. And then 95% of your hinds having a fawn every year. You just Shooting a dry cow is rare. Yeah. If, if you start to find dry cows, you've already, it's too late. You yep. need to start smashing your hind numbers down. Never be afraid to shoot hinds this don't shoot the hinds bro we want more deer is is a ridiculous that came out of the 80s when deer numbers were so low when not when protecting breeding stock was the thing to do yeah we don't need to protect breeding stock now we've got more deer than we know what to do with we need to stop the breeding so we need to start smashing hind numbers all over the place if you keep your hind numbers down and you let your spikers and your young stags walk um you'll start to get a balanced herd ratio or um, at least balance. You want one for one, which is what your Scottish gamekeepers and your European gamekeepers strive for. One female, one male, that's what they're born at. Maintain that through the year classes. Most of our New Zealand herds are at least two for one. Mm-hmm. 65 hinds for every 35 stags. That's typical of most of our herds. And, and you go down into the Whanganui fellow herds and it's way worse than that. That's bad. There's just <laughs> does everywhere. Yeah. Oh, the bucks are so cunning, you never see them. No, no, they're all shot as spikers. There aren't any. Yeah, yeah. And so everything with a puzzle gets to mate, good, bad, or ugly. Yeah. And and I know your listeners will have heard this before, but for me, it's about um, the barroom brawl. Yep. Okay. So you've got two beautiful local girls at the local pub and the shearing gangs in town, 20 guys. um, And they've done a hard day's work in the sheds and they're off to the pub. Two beautiful young women, 20 fit, active shearers. There'll be a brawl, eh? Hundred percent. That's that's the roar. That's the brawl. Okay. Yeah. What if you've got two farm hands? Shearing's done and dusted. There's two farm hands, and the Kiwi Experience bus turns up. 
<laughs> you know, full of German girls. Yeah. Oh, there ain't no brawl. There's no, no fight. Oh, I like that one. Oh, yeah, I like those two. Oh, that one's all right. Yeah. You know, there's no brawl. You know, they don't call it the vagina liner for nothing. No. I was you know, say, it sounds a bit like my contiki. Um, so, so what we're trying to do with with hunting is setting up the barroom brawl, the few beautiful women and the 20 burly blokes yeah. all competing for mating rights. When you hunt on blocks that have got the herd structure right, and we've got that right in Fieldland now. You talk to people who hunted Fieldland 20 years ago, yeah. hardly ever heard a bugle. Today, you can't sleep in most valleys during the bugle because of their nothing off. Is, is one for one optimum or is two to one better? Two stags to one, well, that it's hard to do because yeah. uh, they fight and they kill each other and you'll get dispersal and stuff. So, yeah. um, One for one is better. One for one is what they strive for in places like Scotland and, and most of the European herds. In Fiordland, we can probably do it with the helicopters. We can probably get in the 1.2, 1.3 yep. for one. But um, that's still awesome. Yeah. That, you know, what we don't want is the three for one... Two, two for one, three for one, Wanganui fellow herd, five for one, ten for one, crazy scenario. Yeah, yeah. Because you get genetic drift when every puzzle gets to pass on its genes. In nature, the fittest, strongest males dominate breeding, and the gene flow through to the next generation is from the fittest, strongest animals that can fight off all others and get the, and lion get the, hind, the lion's share of the hinds, yeah? And it's further... Example or further um, exaggerated in New Zealand, given that we only started in a lot of our herds, like tar would be a good example, seeker's probably a good example, that we only started with, you know, 10 or so animals in some cases. Tar was only three or four from memory. So our genetic diversity from day dot was already limited. So the last thing they need is an unbalanced herd structure because you're going to end up with the ones that are a bit Queer. Especially if we shoot all the good ones. Yeah. Because, oh, fuck, that's a beauty. You shoot that one. Oh, no, that's a shit one. Leave that one. Oh, so we want that one to breed? If we are really concerned about genetics, we should be leaving the best ones. No, we put them all on the wall. We leave all the shit to breed. Yeah. Mate, you know? the, the process we've gone through with the estates in Scotland, so sending young guys to Scotland to help out with the gamekeepers, has been a massive education for me and Curran and all the guys that we've had have been involved in it because they're – motivation that the biggest cardinal sin that you could commit as a gamekeeper stalker guide in scotland would be go out and shoot that 14 pointer that's in his prime doing all the breeding if you did that you would not only be fired you'd be probably ostracized out of they shoot those boys when they're 14 15 once they've done all their things and that's the trophy and i hear greg dooley talk about willie and greg a lot talk about Age is the trophy. Yeah. This old gnarly head that's been around for 12 years, 13 years, that's a trophy. Absolutely. You know? I am exceptionally proud of now my ecology creek switch because he's eight years old. Like, they don't, it's not often you get to shoot an eight year old stag on, well, seven years old, sorry, seven year old stag on public land very often. Like, he's coming, he's seen hunters come and go, and I bet you guys have let him walk. Oh, you got a pitch, we got a picture it's of him right. on a game camera. You sent me a picture of him in the velvet, <laughs> and he's looks like he's swallowed a forty-four gallon drum, <laughs> all that cardboard. Yeah, all yeah. that cardboard, and he's walking around 
bloody hoovering up beach leaves that have blown off the night before. Yeah. That's all I figure they're eating. Yeah, it's just sucking up that's blowing sad, down eh? beach sad. seeds. What a shit existence that is. But anyway, you know, that to me is a trophy. Like the guys, like Stefan Hope, the guy that we do a lot of work with, with the Scottish program and done a couple of seasons in Scotland. Like, like he hammers home. The ones that they, he head skins and get put on the wall are the switches. Mm. So an old stag with no brow tines, just a point, are the ones that go around killing all their good stags. So that has become the trophy focus to yep. the point where they have hunted the shit out of them. They're really hard to find, which is great for the deer herd because they're shitty genetics and they're killing the good ones. But from a trophy point of view, that's what they're motivated to get. They don't even give the 14, 16 pointers a second look on the hill. Mm. They're too busy looking for the big old switches that are running around that are the, you know, they're the, they're the target. They're the trophy. The cool thing about Seeker is that they'll, they'll grow eight points as a three-year-old readily if they've yeah. got enough tucker. Um, and so, you know, there are plenty of pretty eights around. And if we get the herd ratios right, keep the hind numbers down, then when you hear a single call, there will be three or four stags with you trying to get in on that big fella. And so it's okay to, to shoot, um, you know, an eight pointer. If you want to shoot an eight pointer, knock your socks off, but you've got to shoot more hinds as well. Yeah. Half of the seeker stags, 54%, in fact, 54% of the stag harvest every year happens in the month of April. Right. And so. then another 30% happens in December and January in the velvet when they're dumb as wood out in the open. Yeah. So they're easy meat. Yeah. What isn't easy is the hinds. And people have got to start saying, Shit, yeah, well, I've shot my eight-pointer for this year. Now I'm going to do my bit for the herd. Yeah. I'm a seeker manager. I'm not just an end-use consumer. I've got a responsibility and an obligation for the high country to look after the foundation upon which this herd is built. I've got to take out some hinds. Yeah. We don't need more deer. We've got to look after the seeker we've got now. And by do, the only way to do that is to look after the habitat that supports them. Okay, so a good seeker, because we obviously had good breeding stock to start with in New Zealand seeker foundation, like New Zealand stock. Well, they came from Woburn Abbey with five different subspecies already. All so mixed the, in together. So the genetic profile of those very few animals was hugely variable and we see it today yeah. with the black velvet Japanese seeker and the golden velvet Manchurian seeker so those are those are the two that you see in summertime yeah. the black velvet um, are more on the Nipponese yeah. line and the golden velvet a bigger heavier set animal more spotty coat more yeah. chestnut spotty coat with a big waving golden wands of velvet yeah. uh, almost red in the sunlight uh, in peak sort of late January, those are Manchurian from further north. Are we? Man, we, we, we've got some magnificent bloodlines already. Um, but what we what do still need to do is let the best stags dominate the breeding. And yeah. to do that, we need lots of stags competing. We've got to set up the bar and brawl. Two beautiful farm girls, 20 burly sh shearers, having yeah. a beer afterwards. That's the brawl. That's what the raw should be. You don't want the Rousey's getting a look in. <laughs> Your words, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> um, so here's a question for you, and it's one that's come from Curran, who is obviously quite focused on his red deer population down south. And this is probably into your experience with the Fueled and Wapiti Foundation and the collaring that you guys have done, seeing what some of those stags can grow into. So 
traditionally speaking, when they you know you know when we first started trying to look after the Wapiti herd, you know, we're shooting, you know, red reds and anything that looked like it wasn't going to grow into much. From what I understand, that over time we figured out that some of those stags actually had potential. They just needed a bit of time to grow. If you have sort of your classic three or four year old red deer, who has grown into a a ten pointer, let's say, so a, a solid ten, is there any hope in his future to become a twelve, or a bigger, or is he going to be just a bloody big ten, in once he hits eight or nine years old? Well, the the genetic profile of the New Zealand red deer herd is very quite variable, right? And um, some of the Warnham Park bloodlines have no trade time, so you know they'll have browse uh, bay time. Sorry, they'll yeah. have they'll have browse trays and royals, but no bay times, and so that's a ten point configuration. It's very common in the wider upper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, short answer is you can't really tell. But what we do know is that it takes a red stag about four years to get his full body size and weight and musculature. Right, and he's putting most of his spring nutrition each year into growing body mass, bone, muscle, body mass. Once he's mature in his body size, he will put far more of his spring nutrition into velvet, especially if he's in good nick coming out of winter, Mm -hmm. which is why velvet farmers feed hard out in August just before they cast their buttons, prop them up with all the nutrients and, and supplements they can, pump them right up so that when they cast those buttons, bang, they're just blowing all that nutrition straight into velvet growth. So... What you do see in stags that are five and six and seven when they hit their full maturity, then you start to see their true potential. And if you shoot him as a four-year-old, he might be a 10-pointer. You just don't know. And that's why the Wapiti uh, herd is starting to change for the positive now. We've realized that it takes Wapiti a long time to mature. Eight years, They're, they're very slow to mature. And some of these little spikies that were collared grew into the most magnificent trophies you'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, and some of the biggest spikes grew into the worst mongrels you've ever seen. Yeah. You just cannot tell. And so at the moment, the the rules uh, around the, the cull decisions that are being made by the Wapiti Foundation is in, if it's a red deer, it's dead. But if it's a, a Wapiti-type hybrid, leave him till he's four years old to before you even start to think about a cull. And for those big fellas, oh, he's five years old, he's six years old, oh, that's old enough. Actually, between five and six and seven and eight, he is going to really change because his body mass is dumb and then his spring nutrition because, let's face it, fjordland densities are really low. We've deliberately got the densities really low so that those animals have all the nutrition they need. And so as soon as they've got their full body mass – They'll pump all that spring nutrition into antler. That's where you'll get your 50 by 50 10-year-olds from. Yeah. You, you, you can't expect them to be growing 50 by 50s as a 5-year-old or a 6-year-old. No. You've got to let them get 8, 9, 10 years old. And you've got to let that age class mature by not shooting them. Like every time you shoot a one out of it every year. In the last five years, we've shifted the average age of the bugle harvest from three and a half years to five and a half years. Heading in the right direction. Heading in the right direction. Still could go a bit further. When it's at seven and a half, eight and a half, 
We'll see be seeing shit. the fifty by fifties. Yeah, how good would that be again? They're in there. I Roy shared a photo from a game camera of a velvet stag last December with me that made my eyes water. Wow. It wasn't shot this year. It makes me happy that there's still, still there to there. make you and Roy water at the eye. This this one was eye watering. Yeah. <laughs> they're there. Uh, still there not won't be, won't be music to a lot of the boys this year that got nah, um, <laughs> fished out of there. <laughs> hey, but what what COVID has done for the New Zealand stag herd is it's shunted them forward a whole year class. No kidding. Yeah. How good is that? That's there's a, there's that's a, a positive thing. Boys. As long as we don't go and smoke them all as velvets. Yeah. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, still. Yeah, I, I get it, and not everybody's. Um, I guess end goal is a line and it's always going to happen to some extent but I think the more people that hear this kind of conversation might think twice about you know if you if you want to yeah let's not go down that rabbit hole but I think that you know in some areas you know well that's gonna, what's wrong with the waro industry yeah because usually the venison schedules highest through November December pre-Christmas because right, they, wa- they want they want they want those um shipping containers full of meat to hit the German docks just for Christmas. Mm. So they're paying good money through November and December. Who's available through De- November, December? Mum is in maternity, in tucked away. Yep. Who's out on top? Old Nongi, two, three-year-old, with a few sticks of velvet. <laughs> thinking, shit, and this a- is good, Tucker. Why is no one else up here? Oh, look, yeah. there's a huge 500. Oh, look, there's a Robinson 44. I wonder mm. what that is. That's a funny-looking bird. Yeah. Done. Free ticket to West Germany. That, that's the lose-lose for conservation when helicopters fly around shooting stags and hinds chew the bush out yeah. and breed up. That's the lose-lose. That's why the waro industry is not currently structured in the right way for conservation or hunting because me and my kids would have gladly shot those velvet stags come the rut. Yeah. Uh, but they're just not there because they yeah and I, I think that lies in the crux of the problem cam is bringing all of these interest groups together you know you know your, your hardcore conservationists forest and bird people who are you know they couldn't they don't care about the hunting side of it because they're not hunters and that's fine but it's about bringing them with commercial with recreational with professional all of these different interest groups into that center zone where we can all tick as many of our boxes as we can and be prepared to have that conversation knowing that you're not going to get to tick all of your boxes, but this is the best result for the community, for the whenua, for the animals, for everything. This is where we need to be. And that's it's in a, the middle, eh? Somewhere in the middle. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, again, I'll reiterate, how exciting is it as a hunter, as a passionate conservationist, as whatever, that we can tick all those really big boxes and have aligned goals and work together for a a good result, a better result than currently exists for everybody. Couldn't agree more. I mean, the most perverse outcome that I can remember in my career is 2006 into Uruwera when the um, when the international venison price was zip and there were no one shooting meat and there was a fleet of robbies flying around to Uruwera shooting velvet stags off the slips and river flats. Just needed a chili bin. Didn't need a hook for the carcasses. Just a yeah. chili bin to put the velvet in. Yeah. They were selling velvet, and the dock officer said to me, "At least someone's shooting some deer." Yeah. It just it was just such a a light bulb moment for me about you got no idea what you just said, bro. Yeah. You have no idea. 
because all those hinds are going to all drop a fawn next year and they don't care whose puzzle gives them the seed. Yeah. And all those velvet stags. All gone. You just, it's going to be a, a sea of fawns hit the deck again next year and the forests are going to get smashed. And or at least someone shooting some deer. Shit. Yeah. Sad, it's, eh? It's a bit, it is sad and it, we've been dealing with it for a long time and unfortunately the same misconceptions involve will exist on both sides so again I reiterate it's good to have guys like yourself organisations like the Central North Island Seeker Foundation who are sitting at that table and at least those in the you know Turangi Taupo community are you know sitting at the same table what's happening down in Wellington and you know some of the decisions that get made down there can't help but frustrate the shit out of everybody but um yeah, unless we have these conversations and um, sort of make ourselves available and push ourselves into the situations, then it will never change. I've just got to say for the record that the dock staff we deal with locally here in the Central Thong, fantastic. Yeah, They're awesome. Hugely supportive, enabling. Um, we know more about what's going on in there than they do and they understand that and value that. Yeah, And we share it freely. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're awesome. So... Um, Yep, I just yeah. I, I think it's certainly a point worth hammering home. There are most of the you know in these areas where dock staff are regional, involved with the community, out there doing the actual work. That's the feedback I get from all over the country. Is they are good, honest, hardworking people with aligned goals. They're in the middle. They're not the extremists. And you know, I'll be the first to admit when we say things like dock want this or dock want that, I am unwittingly or undeliberately not well not deliberately lumping everybody into the same group it's a very distinct um, separation of the real hardline extremists and they don't often exist in the areas where you're actually out there doing it and in the country and the land yeah I totally agree in my experience in Topo is just reinforced with I go down to the Wapiti Foundation meetings twice a year in Tiano yep. the staff down there are the same Awesome, salt of the earth, genuine, knowledgeable people who want us to hunt us to be part of the solution, and they see, you know, they see the Field and Wapiti Foundation running 450 stoat traps in those big glacial valleys, which are not only helping Fio, but they're helping Weka and Kiwi and Kia and Rock Wren and Karerea, um, you know. So yeah, knocking the love handles off the boys in the summertime. Yeah, man. Yeah, getting ready for the raw. All right, Cam, I think that's probably a good note to finish on. I really appreciate your time. Um, let's make this an annual thing. I think we should catch up on a regular basis. I think, well, I hope our listeners got as much from that conversation as I did. But, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. And it's all summarised in our annual Seeker Foundation report due out on Sunday. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island at The Educated Hunter and the hub for all of this is our website theeducatedhunter.com our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world and lastly you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode other than that thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.